Hello, and welcome to Pull Quotes. I'm Emily Pardo. And I'm Jacob McNair. Hate crime charges are relatively rare, but they happened last week in Toronto. Police arrested the editor and publisher of a publication called Your Ward News. James Sears and Leroy St. Germain were both charged with promoting hatred against Jews and women. Many celebrated the charges. Your Ward News is known for Nazi imagery and offensive caricatures, and it's been called misogynistic, homophobic, racist, anti-Muslim, and anti-Semitic. But hate charges inevitably start debates about free speech, and it raises the conversation about how the news media should cover hate and extremism. This week, we spoke with Evan Balgord. He's a freelance journalist who often writes for Canada Land and Torontoist. His research focuses on anti-Muslim and white nationalist movements in Canada. We also spoke with James Turk. He's a professor at Ryerson and director of the Center of Free Expression. Evan, for those who might not have heard of this publication, what is Your Ward News? So Your Ward News is this, um, it's a Nazi paper that shows up on people's doorsteps, mostly in the beaches area of East Toronto, uh, but it has shown up uh, all across Ontario. They claim distribution to over uh, 305,000 households. Um, so it, it is now published quarterly, um, and in it he will uh, attack his critics, he'll attack uh, Marxists, quote-unquote, he'll attack feminists, um, and in the past, uh, the paper has uh, either defended or, or advocated for uh, the sexual assault uh, against women and girls, um, and it depicts uh, some of his critics who are Jewish uh, as inside of, of gas chambers being operated by a German shepherd with a, with a Nazi armband. So when we talk about some of the worst kind of publications out there, this, this might be the worst thing that is widely distributed in Canada, and it's a lot different from other uh, hate websites and things where people go and choose to access it in the way that this material is pushed out to members of the public who do not want to receive it. And the hate charges last week did not come out of the blue. Your Ward News has a long history of complaints and community pushback, and the federal government has banned Canada Post from delivering the paper. Jim, can you talk a bit about that situation? I mean, there's been opposition. It is all those things. It is Islamophobic, anti-Semitic, racist, misogynist. It is all those things. The question is whether it's hate speech under uh, the criminal code. Um, And so why it was charged now instead of in 2015 or 16. I mean, the people who are outraged by it and wanted to be charged have been pressing for this. And so it was sort of out of the blue. Uh, and hate speech is a, something that is uh, the government and the courts are, are very reluctant to proceed with because it is a limit on free expression. And so for hate, hate speech charges to be laid, it has to require the approval of the attorney general of the province, so the police can't just lay the charges. And so obviously it was granted in this case, but why at this time, I don't know. Specifically, the editor and publisher were again charged with uh, promoting hatred against two specific groups, Jews and women. Evan, why are these charges significant? To the best of my knowledge, this is the first time that somebody has been charged uh, with a hate crime towards women as an identifiable group. So that makes this uh, noteworthy in in terms of our our legal system. It is, of course, not the first time that somebody's been charged with a hate offense um, targeted towards Jews. So, I mean, that makes it noteworthy. It also comes on the heels of uh, another uh, hate crime 
um, charge, which is moving forward, which is uh, the blogger Kevin J. Johnston uh, in Mississauga, who is uh, being charged with a hate crime following several Islamophobic uh, videos and comments. So this is maybe the second example in a short period of time of a, a pseudo news or, or a publication calling itself media that has been charged with uh, with a hate crime. Jim, what's the the burden of tr- proof or the bar you need to get over to charge someone with a hate-related offense? Well, the courts have been very clear that hate is not the dictionary definition of hate. It's a it's an extreme in the court's view. What's what's prohibited is an extreme vilification and detestation that uh, being offensive, being nasty uh, and so forth isn't isn't enough to qualify as, as hate speech. There have been two pivotal hate speech cases, one involving the criminal code. It was uh, against a, an anti-Semitic teacher in Alberta. It came down in 1990. It was the Keister case. And then there have been several cases dealing with how, how human rights acts deal with it. There are three provinces in Canada that have hate speech as prohibited under the Human Rights Act. That's B.C., Alberta, and Saskatchewan. And there have been court cases saying what is a constitutional restriction on speech under human rights acts. And so there, it's a very high bar. And so the question in this case is have these guys uh, crossed that bar or not? Mm-hmm. And um, the editor of Your Ward News, James Sears, plans to launch a constitutional charge against the hate speech law itself, saying it violates their right to free expression. And the uh, Ontario Civil Liberties Association has published a letter ask- asking the attorney general to drop the charges. So, Jim, what are your concerns about these charges? My concerns more generally are about restrictions on free speech. Um, a democracy is not defined primarily by elections or the rule of law. It's defined by the fact that it's an ongoing conversation about what's legitimate, what's not legitimate. And uh, a majority is not allowed to shut down that discussion. Uh, When there's a prohibition on certain kinds of speech, that shuts down discussion. It prevents people from saying things and it prevents people from hearing things. Um, And in the United States, there's the the broadest permission of... of, uh, discourse in probably any uh, Western industrialized country. Uh, Canada has somewhat more restriction in terms of hate speech, but the courts have been very clear that this is, as I said earlier, a very high bar. It doesn't refer to offensive speech or hateful speech, and what most people call hate speech is not hate speech under the Canadian law. But in general, I think the the issue is not whether these guys are saying hateful things or not. They most certainly are. The question is, what's the best way of dealing with it? And I tend to feel that the suppression of speech is not the most effective way to deal with deeply offensive and hateful speech. It's far better to denounce it, to criticize it, to uh, rally against it, or to ignore it if they're marginalized, Not you know, but to limit speech limits uh, people's ability to see and hear these folks for what they are. You may recall after Charlottesville, there was a rally of um, white supremacists and neo-Nazis in Boston. There was a lot of pressure to shut that down, and it wasn't. It was allowed to go ahead. And tens of thousands of people turned out for a counter-demonstration for equality and for social justice. And I think we were much better for that for the white supremacist uh, neo-Nazis who claimed that they were having a free speech rally. And it's ironic how the right will champion free speech when were they to come to power, they'd be the first ones to suppress it. But be that as it may, what you saw is a small group of detestable, hateful folks spewing their garbage. On the one hand, you saw tens of thousands of people speaking for equality and social justice on the other. And I think 
far more damage was done to the neo-Nazi white supremacists caused by letting them be seen than had they been banned. Evan, what do you think? In the context of what happened in Charlottesville, I, I agree completely with Jim. In the context of your word news, it's, it's not as if they're putting on rallies and can be opposed in large numbers. They are distributing their material to people without their consent in, in a fairly large way. Um, and they would continue to do so um, had the minister not put in that order to prevent uh, them from being distributed with Canada Post. And were these hate crimes charges not laid, I mean, they would just continue to do what they would do. So in this case, I don't know that allowing them to speak and then countering them with counter speech um, would be effective. Um, I support the fact that these these hate crime charges were were laid on them, and I look forward to the court process, which will determine whether or not it does constitute hate speech under the uh, under the Canadian law. I would note the Supreme Court has held up our our hate speech laws as constitutional uh, two times, and kind of the test they have for our hate speech laws. Uh, is what is the effect that speech has on people. So it, it, the easiest way to conceptualize that is is whether their speech would cause somebody to want to go out and, and do something towards these identifiable groups to target them in some way. And I, I think we'll see through the court process whether or not um, your word news kind of meets that bar to be charged with a hate crime. But if we're not going to use our hate speech laws, um, which have been found constitutional in, in literally the worst cases that I can think of, then we, we may as well not have them. I mean, I, I agree that they should only be used in the most extreme of circumstances, and that's why we do have high bars set, like the, the attorney general needs to okay the charges. But I think in some cases they should be used, but there should be a, a high bar that has to be hurdled before they, before they are laid and before they are charged. Before we continue, we just, I think we should just back up a bit. Could you elaborate specifically on what happened with Canada Post and how the decision was made to block distribution? Sure. So I won't get the timing exact on this, but it would have been, I think, about a year ago now. So the minister responsible for Canada Post um, issued this order that is in the act which governs how, how Canada Post runs. And the order basically says that if the minister has reasonable grounds to believe that hate propaganda is being spread through the use of Canada Post that they can issue a, a order prohibiting the, the distribution of that through Canada Post. Um, this triggers a process called a board of review process, which is a very obscure kind of board, which hasn't been convened since, uh, I believe it was actually Ernst Zundel, quite a long time ago. So they, they pick three people. One of them has to be a lawyer, and they're hearing the question of whether or not the minister was justified in issuing that order. So for the minister to be justified, they would have to believe that, yes, there was a, basically a crime that was being committed. Um, and I would note that now that those charges for that crime have been laid against these, these individuals, which, which certainly does not help um, the Your News editor and publisher in this board of review panel. But ultimately, this, this board of review, even though it is going to kind of test the constitutionality of the order... All that they do is provide recommendations to the now minister in charge of Canada Post, which they can either accept or, or not accept. So at, at most, this, this, this board of review process is just going to come out with a recommendation to the minister. Uh, Jim, when would you say that a charge of hate speech is justified, if, um, given that you're so strongly in favor of the openness of discussion, the actual confrontations like the Boston demonstrations? When do you think these laws need to be brought in? I think it's an open question whether hate laws do the job they're supposed to do. Uh, that's, that's a different issue. I think the current uh, position of the Supreme Court, of how high a bar it has to be, if you're going to have hate speech laws, 
then that's a reasonable position. So the problem is the term hate speech is one that a lot of us use sort of loosely, and the courts have a have a very specific meaning. So I think it's useful to distinguish between hateful speech and what's legally hate speech. But the reason I think that there's an open question whether hate speech laws, however well-intentioned or of any use, in there's two reasons. One, they don't work. In most European countries, there's much more restrictive hate speech laws than there are in Canada. Uh, to be qualified as hate speech in, in most European countries, is it's a much lower bar. Mm-hmm. And yet there's not a shred of evidence, no data whatsoever to suggest that there's any less Islamophobia, anti-Semitism, racism in Europe than there is in Canada. Secondly, if you try to de- have laws that capture the range of things that are hateful, and if you talk to marginalized uh, people of whatever uh, view, uh, they, they talk not only about the nastiness of, of vicious epithets, but of a whole range of things, including microaggressions, all sorts of ways in which they're demeaned and, and treated badly on a day-to-day basis. And if you try to have a law that captures all of that, then you give the state the power to, to limit all sorts of behavior. It's not possible to do. And so these laws get used arbitrarily. So when the UK brought in its very restrictive hate speech law uh, to deal with racism, the first people charged were black power activists. Uh, So I don't think there's any evidence that more restrictive hate speech laws diminish racism or sexism or Islamophobia or anti-Semitism. And secondly, if you try to make them broad so they might, you capture all sorts of behavior and you give the state power that's used arbitrarily. I have some of the same concerns, but uh, I, I do think that hate speech laws can have um, a positive impact. Um, I would argue that uh, the free marketplace of ideas where we're supposed to use our free expression to debate ideas and, and the superior idea will win um, is kind of the argument that's frequently put forward in, in favor of free speech and, and free expression. But we're not seeing that work too well right now. Um, see, the Canadian Journalists for Free Expression recently held an event um, called is is the market price of free ideas in a depression and with with what is a whole scale assault on truth right now coming from the highest levels of power in the united states with so-called alternative facts uh, and with calls that that media and, and previous authorities which were seen as being you know objective and sources of information also being attacked for their for their credibility i believe the marketplace of free ideas is in a depression and we, we need to fix that but when it comes to hate speech laws, I do see them having uh, an impact because especially in the case uh, of Sears, they're really, I, I can't think of another way to properly address the issue of your ward news because they're going to keep doing what they're doing and, and pushing it out to people that, that don't want it. It's not really possible to engage with them and stop them in a matter of civil discourse, in my opinion. Um, and I would also say, like, I, I spoke with some experts in intergroup relations that, that talk about the impact that that both hate speech and hateful speech have in normalizing an attitude of, of racism or whatever directed at, at certain groups and how ultimately that is reflected in, in people becoming radicalized and, and ultimately uh, we're seeing an increase in, in, in hate crimes and hate incidences, especially in this year 2017, uh, I've been told uh, by the uh, Muslim and Jewish communities here in Canada. But look, there's, there's, uh, I don't think there's any evidence that the marketplace of ideas assures that the best ideas uh, fair, yeah. win out. Uh, I mean, how would we have Trump? How would we have had some former governments in Canada? How would we have a lot of bad laws? Uh, so I don't, I don't think that's a, a powerful argument for, for free expression. 
On the other hand, our ability as individuals to develop our own ideas in part depends on our ability to say things that may be stupid or hateful or wrong and have them contested and us having to justify them and find that they're unjustifiable. That's part of it. Another part, as I say, is, is the notion that a democracy is about an ongoing conversation about what's legitimate and what's not legitimate. And as soon as you give the state the right to limit what can be part of that conversation, you're diminishing it. Uh, and what you see in totalitarian states are massive limits on what can be said. Uh, the first thing that uh, dictators do whenever they come to power is to go after academics and journalists. I mean, everyone who wants to censor always has, in their minds, an admirable justification for doing it. And so I think the concern is not uh, should we oppose uh, hateful speech. We should. Should we use the criminal law to do it? And what I'm raising in question is whether the criminal law is an effective means of doing that. I think there are far more effective means. So. In the past while, as Evan mentioned, we are seeing a rise in the prominence and publicity of white nationalist and related movements. There's often a sense that extremists have been emboldened by the election of Trump, the success of the Brexit vote, and um, feel as if there is more of a license to be vocal. Evan, to what extent do you think a publication like Your Ward News is indicative of more widespread attitudes in Canada? Well, Your Ward News has been around since before the recent rise in this uh of this kind of, of speech and normalization of these attitudes in society. Um, Your Word News is only tangentially connected to the rise of these things. I think that they have been emboldened by them, and they have spoken with some of the so-called alt-right groups that, that, that are operating in Toronto. But I think in the context of these charges, um, it may send a bit of a signal that there there is a limit on 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 the kind of speech that you have at an extreme, and hopefully it prevents others from reaching quite that level of extremity. Could I just come in on that, oh, yeah, sure, on that last mm-hmm. point? Most people I show your award news to the first time think it's a parody. I mean, it's an outrageous, nasty, almost joke. Uh, Sears portrays himself as this godlike figure. He makes statements that his three heroes are, are Adolf Hitler, Jesus Christ and Ayn Rand. Uh, the photos he announces in every issue how they're going to have the first Canadian Marxist book burning and brings in images of book burning. I mean, they never had it as far as I know. I mean, it's over-the-top, outrageous, nasty, vicious stuff. You know, if you get it in your door and you don't like it, you throw it in the trash. It comes back to the issue, do we use the criminal law to deal with this? Or do we take responsibility as citizens and as organizations to confront these folks, to challenge them, to make clear that this is unwanted and unwelcome in in a decent Canadian society? Um, Criminal law can be a tool to be used. It's not the most effective tool. We need to engage us far more. And one of the reasons there's such persistent problems is because of the widespread systemic racism in our country. And we have to take more responsibility for fighting that, not just say, well, we're going to have the cops and the courts deal with it. Uh, There are times when that's appropriate, but that's never the principal or the most effective option. And so um, one way that uh, as a society we engage with these groups is through news coverage. And um, again, this is something that came up during the American election, the the fine line between covering an issue and giving a platform to the people involved in the issue. Um, 
sort of open question to both of you, how much should journalists be giving coverage to these kinds of organizations? It is a very difficult question. Uh, I'm one of the ones who think that charging Ernst Zundel, who was a, an awful Holocaust denier, was a tactical mistake. Here was a guy churning out a, a publication in his basement. I would be surprised if his readership was more than 500 people. Uh, he gets charged uh, under the criminal code and suddenly becomes front page stories. And instead of 500 people reading about it, tens of thousands are aware of him and see his message. So it's not that what he was doing was acceptable. It was absolutely unacceptable. The question is, how do we deal with it? And that was an instance where I think dealing with it as we did uh, was counterproductive. And journalists have to make the decision. If you cover your war news or you cover uh, Trump's morning uh, tweets, um, are you spreading stuff that doesn't deserve to be spread or are you covering things that are major news? Well, when it comes to kind of the work that I do in monitoring and reporting on these groups, if it was just a half dozen people with some signs on a corner and, and people were ignoring them, I, I wouldn't be covering them. I'm frequently asked this this exact same question by by other news outlets that I provide information to on a, on a somewhat regular basis, and I'm asked this question all the time. And I have a two-part answer to it. So when we talk about the size of what it is now and is it significant, I look back to the most recent Canadian example, and that was when the Heritage Front, which were like real Nazis, combat boots, shaved heads, whole uniform, when they were on the streets of Toronto in the late 80s, early 90s, even up to the early thousands. They would hold these uh, these like white power metal concerts, and they would bring out 200 to 300 people to, to these events. And there were like some racially motivated assaults following these concerts and, and things of that nature. And, and that certainly got people's attention at the time and was seen as an issue. And, and eventually the Heritage Front was, was dealt with. Here in Toronto, we are having the same number of people show up to some of these um, Islamophobic and anti-Muslim demonstrations at Toronto City Hall. There's two or 300 people that will show up um, on that side to, to bring that message, you know, against M103 and uh, against the, what they see as the Islamization of Canada. So when we talk about size, yes, I think it is as large of, of a hateful movement uh, as we've ever had in Canada. When, when we talk about covering it, I think that it, its size and its prominence may make it newsworthy on its own. But what I usually tell people is, when they're taking up physical public space and they already seem to be expanding and successfully spreading their message, then there's no point ignoring it. What we've seen in the last uh, five, 10 years is this um, alternative media ecosystem that has started. They have their own news. It's no longer like there's only six major papers who are the gatekeepers of news. They have their own news. They have social media. They're already spreading their message and reaching those people, a lot of them who are receptive to it and they're, they're growing. Um, so at that point, when they're already kind of like self-sustaining, they are becoming a political force. They are out on the streets in numbers. That's when I think it's newsworthy and, and should be covered. And I think Evan makes an important point. Things are different now than they were 20 years ago with social media and the ability of some guy in his basement, instead of just publishing a hard copy newspaper that maybe three or hundred people see. Well, they used to leave stickers on, on phone booths, right? right. That, that was how they spread their message. Right. Now... Some guy in a basement in Uzbekistan can reach tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people. So it has to be dealt with in a different way. I, I couldn't agree more. But journalists have to decide in each case, are you simply giving additional publicity to people uh, that serves no useful purpose? Or are you dealing something with which the public needs to know and to respond? But it's, it's an issue more for more than just journalists. I mean, I, I, the issue that you pose for journalists is issues for all of us. How do we confront 
these really hateful, awful things. Uh, and it's not adequate just to lie back and, and say, well, the police will deal with it or we'll lay charges or we'll get the courts to deal with it. I think we have to deal with as a society. And if I can jump in there, I mean, how we cover it kind of in journalism also matters. So often a criticism that I have of how media cover these groups is they'll allow these groups to define themselves. It's an old standard in journalism that, you know, you go to them for comment, you let them define themselves. That's not working so much with these groups who very much have a, a public-facing PR face and then a private, for well, Facebook groups are the best example. They'll have a public Facebook group and a private Facebook group. Uh, Vice just did a great article about La Mouette or the, the Wolf Pack in Quebec where they were in both of those groups and they saw how there were different messages. And in the public PR-facing group, they'll talk about not being racist. And then in their private Facebook group, they will be very racist. So I think it's media's job if we're going to report on these groups and, and as we do – to actually do the research into these groups and properly characterize them. If they are Nazis and they are calling themselves something other than Nazis, we should call them Nazis. If if they are white supremacists or white nationalists or whatever they are, we need to call them accurately by what they are, not necessarily what they want to be defined as. But we can do that using their own words. We can say, we can quote them from what they say in their private Facebook groups. You know, we can quote them from what they say in their YouTube videos to their followers and accurately represent them. And if we accurately represent them, it's not true that all press is good press. I mean, they might get a few points here and there for saying, like, look at the lying media. But if you can expose to to Canada, to the public writ large, what these groups really mean and what they're really after and what they really believe behind closed doors, then I think you will get more people to come out to demonstrations to oppose them. And it lets the public do their job, civil society do its job in opposing these groups if we accurately represent them. Mm -hmm. I mean, Evan's absolutely right. These groups, many of these groups are very sophisticated in their spin, uh, you know, that in Boston that the neo-Nazis and white supremacists called it a free speech rally. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, they try to hide, which is, again, why I think the more exposure of them, including letting them have their rally so you see them for what they are, the better. And the more journalists look at it and don't just accept their spin, but as Evan is saying, do the research and, and show them for what they really are the better we all are. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, and going back to the question of what journalists should call people, you talked yeah. about um, using the words they use in their own private discussions, but mm -hmm. you've also, um, there's always a hesitancy for journalists to call something racist or sexist because they don't seem as objective. Like with your award newspapers say, mm -hmm. critics claim it targets Jews and Muslims. But in your article for Canada Land, you called your award news overtly anti-Semitic, racist, homophobic, and misogynistic. So what language do you think journalists should use in that regard when they're describing these kinds of organizations. Well, they should be accurate. I mean, you don't need That's to right. you don't need to couch terms when it's something like your word news. It is overtly anti-Semitic on its face. I know that there is kind of a, a people are sometimes gun shy to use more strong language and uh, and I don't think that actually fulfills the, the objective of journalism, which is to, to present the truth. And and being accused of being biased for calling something racist or whatever, when you do it using their own material and like any fair and reasonable person would be like, yeah, that's that's pretty racist. I'm not talking about like cultural appropriation or microaggressions or whatever. I'm talking about people saying like really racist stuff, like calling Muslims muzzies, for example, or ragheads or like this is the kind of stuff that I see in their private channels all the time. So I think it, it is fair to characterize that as, as racist. And, and of course, there are are some consequences to that. Like people say that you're biased. Well, as a journalist, I don't accept um, that my being anti-racist is a bias. I think that should be a baseline that we have in society that overt racism is just no go. I do not consider that a bias in any way, shape or form. Um, but I know 
sometimes that we as journalists are criticized for being biased against these groups. I'd like to take uh, Evan's point a little further. I mean, first of all, journalists cannot avoid being biased. I mean, all of us have biases. What cho- stories we choose to cover or not cover, we, we, there's no such thing as neutral. You can't report from nowhere. Uh, so what you can do is be aware of your biases and then hold yourself to a high professional standard of accuracy. And accuracy means not bullshitting the public by refusing to use the term racist when something is overtly racist. And if you're accused of being biased or unfair, you have either your interview with the person or their publication or whatever to say, well, here's what they said, here's what they did. And I stand by the claim that this is racist. Uh, That's part of being a good journalist. It's not, in fact, uh, trying to obscure the reality is failing in your job as a journalist. And one of the things we need more of in Canada uh, is more research and more tracking of these far-right groups. In the United States, there's an absolutely wonderful group called the Southern Poverty Law Center, which tracks white uh, supremacist, uh, neo-Nazi, and other extremist groups has a website uh, that keeps track of thousands of groups, has an interactive map so you can go to whatever state or whatever city and see a list of the groups in your community and where they are. Uh, and they use they, they go to court and sue these groups for some of their actions and shut some of them down. Uh, a very activist uh, kind of approach. I think that's part of the, the civil society response that's necessary if we're going to be successful in dealing with groups like and, this. And we have nothing like that here in Canada no. at the moment, uh, which is uh, insane to me. Uh, there's, that, yeah, there's, really there's um, a faculty member at the University of Ontario uh, Institute of Technology in Durham region and a colleague in, at Simon Fraser who two or three years ago Uh, published a a paper identifying, I think, three or four hundred hate groups in Canada. That's the only example of, uh, and I don't know if they're continuing that work. Are you talking about Dr. Barbara Perry and Ryan Scrivens? Perry and Scrivens. They have continued some of that work, and when you talk about the idea of like an organization that that tracks that, I have been talking with several several individuals who also do that work in monitoring and countering these right-wing extremists, and and we are discussing how I mean, that's that's really important to do. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So how would you evaluate um, the coverage of white nationalism and racism in Canada just as it stands today? I, I, well, I have those criticisms that these groups aren't described accurately in every case. And I think that the media has been very reticent to cover them out of fear of giving them oxygen or a platform. Uh, but I think that that can be countered with just good reporting on the groups and being accurate about what they are. Um, there are several stories that have not been told that are extremely concerning that I know about. And I wish there were more people operating in my field telling those stories because there are too few of us with with deep knowledge on these groups. I I think journalists face several challenges. One, uh, whether they're fearful of their editors, others thinking that they're biased by covering these stories. They're also, I think, challenged because of the loose usage of terms of Mm -hmm. racist or uh, sexist or anti-Semitic that happen in the general society so that people who are critical of the politics of the state of Israel get defined as anti-Semitic. And they may be, but that, you know, being critical of the policy of the state of Israel in itself doesn't define you as anti-Semitic. So that uh, the lack of clarity in society about the use of these terms, I think, inhibits some journalists from using them for fear that they're going to be. So that goes back to what Evan was saying. They're 
not only fine to use, they're should be used if they're accurate. As a scalpel, yeah. Like they, As a scalpel. Yeah. So it's a professional standard that journalists have to meet. That's the only standard that they have to meet, that they're accurate. They don't have to be balanced. You don't have to quote every perspective on every issue in order to have a good story, but you do have to be accurate. And if you're accurate, there's a lot of coverage of this that needs to be done so the public can be informed. Because after all, we in the public learn a lot about what's going on in our society through you. And if you're not telling the stories and you're not telling them accurately, then you're doing a disservice to all of us and, and making it much harder for us in our democratic conversation to figure out what we should be doing. And, and to your point of like people using words too freely, I mean, the anti-fascists describe their opponents as Nazis very frequently. Sometimes they're, they're, they're far too loose with that definition. And I've had conversations with some of my sources where I ask them, like, well, you're calling all these people Nazis. Some of them actually are Nazis. What do you kind of call them? Like, you have nowhere to, you can't go up from there. You're right. going to call them super Nazis. You're going to call them real Nazis. Like, there are, terms have to be used, like, very selectively because you don't want to group too many things together. No, you, I mean, you're absolutely right, Evan, because yeah. the term loses its currency yeah. if it's used loosely. Uh, the term fascist is used very loosely, increasingly loosely, and it has a very important meaning. So if you label somebody a fascist who simply disagrees with you about something. Uh, you, you diminish, and, and that's the point I was making about anti-Semitism. So to bring it back to the Your Ward News thing, um, what effect do you think these charges will have on other, uh, what you call alternative media organizations or other groups like that? I don't think um, a lot of them have anything to be concerned about. I mean, I see examples of what I would believe would meet the legal definition of hate speech fairly frequently in my research and monitoring of these groups. But it's not like I'm going to start laying complaints or calling the police every time I see it because it's widespread. When it's in private channels, you know, people are free to be Nazis, you know, in their own basements. But with the case with the Ward News, I mean, they're they're pushing it out on you. Yeah. Um, it's not like you're going on to Storm. Like if you go on to Stormfront, you know what you're going to be reading. Um, and I still think that it's extremely concerning when there's calls for violence and things like that. Um, but what, what kind of precedent will the Orward News hate, hate crimes kind of set? Um, I don't know. I think it, it may scare people off from trying to send out a message that crosses the line so broadly to the public. Um, but, I mean, it is, it is like the worst example in, in Canada and would just kind of reaffirm that this doesn't fly here. And for me, um, I saw your word news is largely irrelevant. I mean, it's outrageous. It's offensive. It, I think it has virtually no impact. Uh, a lot of people who receive it are deeply offended by it, and I think they should throw it in the trash. And I don't think the charges against them are going to silence anybody else nor encourage anybody. I don't think it's going to have any impact that way. The only thing it is going to do is going to provide the Supreme Court, because uh, I think that's where this case is going to end up, another opportunity to clarify what constitutes hate speech and what doesn't. That's it for Pull Quotes this week. Pull Quotes is a production of the Ryerson Review of Journalism. Find more at rrj.ca and follow us on Twitter at Ryerson Review. Pull Quotes is produced by Laura Howells, Emily Pardo, and myself, Jacob McNair. Thanks again to Angela Glover for all her technical assistance. Executive producers are Sonia Fada and Stephen Trumper. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.